All right. Well, when you're ready, sir, let's get going. All right. Go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is my old friend Vitaly Katzenelson. He's the CEO of Investment Management Associates. He's written one of my favorite books on investing, The Little Book of Sideways Markets. Uh, that came out a few years ago. We'll be talking about that in a little bit of depth. We'll also be talking about Vitaly's philosophy on investing, life, and lots of other things. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Hi, Vitaly. How are you? Hi, Toby. I'm doing great. It's, a, it's such a privilege and pleasure to be on your podcast. You have a, such a great podcast. I'm a big fan. So well, That's very kind. The privilege is all mine in this instance. Uh, I think that you have perhaps the best background story of anybody I've ever had on the podcast. Uh, you grew up in Russia and you came to the US and now you're an investor. So can you talk a little bit about what was it like growing up in Russia and how did you get to the States? Yeah, so um, I, didn't, I didn't grow up just in Russia. I grew up in a Soviet Russia, which is uh, uh, quite different than Russia today. Um, so I, yes, I grew up in a Murmansk, a city called Murmansk, which is above uh, the Arctic Circle, you know, by maybe 150 miles from Norway, but the northern part of Norway. So it's very cold, very long winters, very short summers. Like Seattle looks like a sunshine state. <laughs> I mean, it's a sunshine city compared, you know, compared to Murmansk. Um, and uh, so when I was growing up, I knew very little about investing. I think probably the first time I thought you know, I, I even thought about investing when I watched uh, a movie with Eddie Murphy, Trading Places. In and the States, even, so did you see that in... in I know, I, th I, think I, I think I saw it in Russia, when I was still in Russia. And uh, at the time, I thought investing was basically what we saw in the movie, trading pork bellies and orange futures and a lot of people yelling at the stock exchange, whatever, the exchanges. I did not even know, that was not even stock exchange then. That was a commodities exchange in the movie. But that's what I thought investing was. So if you ask me in late 80s if I ever going to become a, an investor, I would have said, of course not. Who wants to do that? <laughs> too boring. And, well, too boring and too chaotic. And I, my voice is, I can't yell at that much for that long. So anyway, uh, so in, uh, in 1991, my family immigrated from uh, Murmansk to Denver. And the reason we uh, went to Denver because my father's younger sister left Russia in, in 1979 or 1980, and she moved to New York. She was in Brooklyn, and uh, there's, there's a movie, Moscow and Hudson with Robin Williams. That movie basically described her immigration, you know, very similar. And um, so by that time, she, she moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, thankfully she invited us to Denver, not to Cheyenne. And so, well, there was nothing wrong with Cheyenne, but let's be honest, Denver's probably more interesting place to grow up, uh, uh, <laughs> to be in. Um, anyway, so we, so I spent all my American life, which is now almost 29 years, 28, 29 years in Denver. 
And uh, so even when it came to Denver, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But at the time, I did not speak English, and I was 18 and a half years old, almost 19. So I went to high school, So, which is very interesting. In Murmansk, I went to technical college. So I already graduated from high school. I went to technical college. When we back, came to Denver, I ended, I ended up going back to high school because that was the cheapest way for me to learn English. Because the first year, the first year when you're in Colorado, you're out of state if you go to local school. So... I went to high school, finished high school, and then I went to University of Colorado. And um, in the first couple of years at the University of Colorado, I dated maybe I don't know five or six different majors. And yeah, you know, I, I, you know, um, I had more majors than girlfriends at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, the 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 interesting part was that I really did not know what I, what I wanted to do. And then I got a job at an investment firm, and I and that. They hired me not because of my investment skills, but they hired me because they, I was good with computers and they needed somebody to help them with computers. And they had a Bloomberg terminal. The uh, portfolio managers there were incredibly kind people, and I was still friends. And um, at the same time, I took a finance classes. Started to take, I started to take finance classes. And this is when I realized that investing is a lot more than yelling at stock exchanges. I realized that investing is actually analyzing companies. And so the kind of combination of me working for an investment firm and taking finance classes, I realized, oh, my God, this, this is what I want to do. And I was relatively young. I mean, I wasn't Warren Buffett young, like 11 years old when he discovered he wants to be an investor. I was my early 20s, maybe 22, uh, 21, 22 years old. And I realized, well, I'm going to do investing. So for that, I need to do CFA. I need to get my master's degree in finance. And so... I had a very laser focus relatively early, you know, in, you know, it, like in early 20s. And so that was it. That's that's how. When did you join Investment Management Associates? Because I feel like you, you, it says you joined them as an analyst and now you're CEO. So how did that? Yeah. How did yeah. That... yeah. So I joined Investment Management Associates in 1997. I think this was my. I was one class away from graduating uh, from the University of Colorado, getting my undergraduate degree. And uh, so here's the story. So that firm that I started was, you know, originally was PVG Asset Management. And they did not need another analyst. So I started looking for a job. And literally, I literally what I did, I, this was, remember, this is kind of early innings of internet. So this one, they still had yellow pages. I literally went to yellow pages and I, and I faxed my resume to every money management firm in Denver. So the uh, Michael Kahn, who is now my partner, but then was my boss, you know, when he he when he got my resume, he did not even post the job, you know, yet. So I was competing against nobody because there was, you know, it was not advertised. And I think, to my luck, I was the only person he interviewed. So if I had any competition, probably I would not get the job. So he was but, thinking uh, about posting the job, but he hadn't posted it yet. He he needed yes. someone, but he hadn't yes. hadn't looked. Yeah, his analyst left, and they were literally thinking about posting a job, and they haven't posted it yet. And they just got my resume in the fax machine. So I basically spammed his fax machine, right? I sent him my resume, and uh, he interviewed me, and I got hired. But it's so it's a there was a luck element in this, but at the same time. Like, you know, I did send out 200 resumes to, you know, to, to people who, to everybody in Denver. So, you know, there was, you know, some element of uh, persistence on my part. Were you a value investor at that stage? Had you read Buffett's stuff or were you still sort of trying to work out what you were going to do? 
Oh yeah, so I knew I wanted to do investing, but I did not know that there are grades of investing. I did not How know How did you become stuff. acquainted with Buffett and value? How did that come about? So that came actually later in my career than, you know, than I would like. So when I joined IMA, Mike was a kind of a GARP investor, growth at a reasonable price. And he owned Walgreens at the time for 20 years. And I remember at the interview, he was showing me uh, like uh, his position in Walgreens. He's like, yeah, I owned it for 20 years. And his cost basis at the time was like, I don't know, 50 cents or something. You know, he just bought it and never sold it. You know, he was kind of growth at reasonable price. And that's what he did. Um, and that's so Mike is uh, was my mentor and he's still my, my mentor. He's still my very good friend and we have a very good close relationship. And uh, he basically introduced me to kind of growth at reasonable price investing, you know, GARP investing. And uh, and uh, Mike has done a great job uh, managing our clients through the 1999 bubble because we did not participate participate in the bubble, and uh, which 1999 was painful, right? Because if you had any kind of discipline in 1999, you would have been left behind. Right? You guys were still focused on the reasonable price part of the of the yes. growth, not growth at That's any right. price. That's right. That's right. We were focused on a reasonable price, and that yeah. And uh, you know, and Mike, Mike is you know at the time was doing it probably for 20 something years, and uh, he saw that movie before in the 70s. Um, so we stayed out of that, of that bubble. And, but then 2002 was a very difficult year for us. And, and this has kind of led me to re-examine our, like our process. And this is where I realized, well, reasonable price is, may not be good enough. It should be unreasonable. (laughs) Okay. And this is where margin of safety comes in. So this realization made me to explore kind of first of all market cycles and this is kind of when my research into my first book started to percolate but this has made me also this is where i started to read more and explore other ways to invest and this is when i discovered buffett so i kind of i came to buffett later than i in the hindsight and the hindsight as i would have liked and um and this is where i really became kind of little by little it was like some people say, like they read, you know, they pick up the book, uh, they pick up the uh, intelligent investor, and they have this kind of moment, like this light go, you know, look going. For me, it was a kind of, it was a very slow process. But then it's, you know, then over time I became a value investor. What's the difference between a growth at a reasonable price investor and a Buffett style franchise DCF style investor? God, that's a good question. I still struggle to find the difference. Um, I think if you buy a company, so I think, okay, so let's let's step back for a little bit. Okay, let's talk about what value investing means to me now, you know, which has changed over time, okay? If you and I talked 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I would have told you value investing is basically buying cheap companies, which is, which you know, which would basically mean statistically cheap, right? You know, and uh, buying buy below ten times earnings or low price to book or whatever. Okay, but I realized that's a very primitive way to look at it. And um, value investing to me is a philosophy. Okay, it's it's a, it's a philosophy, which is basically I describe in a 
I wrote this uh, chapter for my next book, which I, if I ever finish it, it would be in that book. But it's I call the Six Commandments of Value Investing, and it's basically like the you know, the Old Testament has ten commandments. Well, this one has six. I didn't want to compete with the you know, Old Testament. So. Okay, but so but it's basically value investing is a philosophy where. Um, you, and you know all of them, but it's a, you treat stock as a business, not as a piece of paper or symbol. You have a long-term time horizon. Mr. Market is there to serve you, not the other way around. Um, you treat risk as a, uh, as a permanent loss of capital, not as volatility. In the long run, stocks revert to their fair value, etc. You know, so this is the six commandments. It's a philosophy, okay? And the interesting part, you can apply this philosophy to stocks that may not look statistically cheap, okay? And I'm gonna give you an example. So a few years ago, we bought a company that uh, was growing revenue very rapidly, but was not profitable, it was losing money. And uh, I, I forget the numbers now, but we, we basically paid more five times, you know, five or six times sales. And uh, it was company, it was Twilio. Okay, and I did a write-up on the Value Investor Club, and I basically said by posting this write-up, you guys are going to kick me out of the Value Investor Club because this does not <laughs> look like your traditional value investment. But one thing I realized that actually you can apply this framework even to I could at that at that price I could have applied it to Twiller because if I uh, a couple things that company might have been losing money, but it was losing money because they were spending hundred million dollars in R and D. Okay. Right. Which is was basically, I'll give you this example. This, which is an accounting, which is really an account, an accounting anomaly. When the Walgreens opens a store, it doesn't get to, uh, it gets to depreciate the you know the, the you know uh, the cost of the store over a long period of time. If you come, if company invests in R and D, it expands on day one. Right. Okay. So if you look at the Twilly and you said, okay, two things. First of all, their expenses are really too you know too high because if you amortize the R&D investment over time, they actually, they're, you know, they would be making money, number one. Number two, this is a company that has fixed costs. If you are certain the revenues will continue to grow, then the margins, you cannot help but to see the margins expand. So in this analysis, I realized, well, if I'm very conservative with their sales, and at the time we're going to 50% a year, I took them down to 20%, 20, 25%. In three years, they would be trading at maybe two and a half times revenues, which is for a software company, that's actually probably the low end, you know, uh, you know kind of as, as bad as it gets. So we, I realized in the worst case, I won't, you know, if I'm very conservative, in the worst case, I won't lose money, which already, so long-term time horizon. So I was looking not, I was looking out three to five years out, probably five years out. The, there was margin of safety. Okay, they you know, and so if you go through the kind of the six commandments framework, you can see how a company like Twilio, you know, fits in. You know, we were able to actually you know fit it into this framework, and it was you know, incredibly successful investment for us. Um, I think the stock went from 25 to to 100 today. Um, but again, that's statistically it would not fall into value investing. Uh, so anyway, so going back. Uh, to, to your question, what is you know uh, how how I how I transitioned? Well, I started I, I started out as looking at value investing as basically buying cheap stocks, and today to me it's a much more it's more of a framework of philosophy than just 
doing uh, arithmetic saying, oh, 10 times earnings, you know, that's, that's cheap. It, that's about it. Yeah, that's cheap. Yes. Yeah, I, I understand the process that you've gone through. And I sometimes think about like, I think growth at a reasonable price, and I, you might you might correct me if I'm if I'm wrong about this, but I understand it. You're just looking at dividing the growth rate by the price earnings ratio, and if you're sort of under one, I think is that you want to be below one, which indicates that you're getting a sufficiently high growth rate divided by a sufficiently low price earnings ratio that you get. That's a good kind of position. So it's a it's just a simple rule of thumb. Whereas the value invest, the, the, the Buffett style framework is, there's a lot that it, it's more philosophical, there's more thinking involved in the, in the position. Is that a fair distinction? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, you, that's probably right. I never really, uh, to me, kind of GARP was too limiting. Right. Because let me, let me tell you the limitations of that. That it assumes that actually, I wrote about this in my first book. It basically assumes that company can maintain this growth forever. Right. Which, which is usually not the case. At some point, if you grow at 20% a year forever, you become the economy. You know, okay. Or right. you become the industry. Yeah. So, so there is a, so that, you know, so you have to assume that the growth, you know, the growth rate at some point will slow down. And uh, I still think, in the terms of kind of discounted cash flow analysis, because that grounds me into thinking about business, right? So, if company is growing at a fast rate, I you know I do have to make an assumption that at some point this growth will slow down. Otherwise, it just it will it will become the industry, right? Um, so, GARP, like as I as I start to use it more and more, I start to see limitations of GARP, and this is in part why I transition. What made me a value investor, not a you know today I'm a value investor, not just a you know garb investor. So uh, yeah, sometimes the, I I find it uh, it's funny though that I I make that I I point out that some of the best investors who I know who are Buffett style investors, their analysis isn't much more involved than a GARP style investment at the valuation point because all they simply look at. And they're using some variation of Gordon growth model, dividend discount model, and they're just looking mm-hmm. at what approximately what are the cash flows this year, what's the what's the growth rate, and what's the what's the appropriate discount rate, and they just use that because all of the work is done on the business, and all of the work is done yeah. outside of that. They're just simply looking at what is a sort of reasonable valuation for this company, roughly, and then I'm going to go and do a whole lot of work and think about where this business is going to be in five and ten years' time, and so on. So I just think I I, I think that sometimes value investors kind of poo-poo the uh, growth at a reasonable price, but I don't mind simple rules of thumb for kind of figuring out at a very high level whether something is worth considering further. Yeah. So when when interesting when we do an analysis. When, for every company we own, we build a financial model. And this financial model, the first version of it is going to be what we call it a tablecloth model, which is going to be evident in a second. It's usually very kind of it's usually very big. You know, it's you know, it's usually we go in depth and if we analyze a drug company, we actually gonna go through every drug and gonna, you know, try to have a an opinion on every drug. Not well like when if it's a drug company, we would actually try to see okay when the, when when is expiration date, when when the, when when does the patent expire, and then we can assume the sales will decline for by ninety percent. Like, but anyway, we would for the drug company we go one drug by drug. If we're analyzing a um, retailer, we actually can analyze it. You know, we can analyze it on a on a store level, etc. But 
at the end of the day, for us, you know, the second model we're going to build is going to be a napkin model, tablecloth napkin. Right. And the, th the napkin model is basically, we can only really build a napkin model if we really understand the business, right? Because that is actually, the napkin model, to some degree, it's more difficult to build because at right. this point, you really need to know the drivers of the business, okay? And the only, like, we found for us, the, the easiest way for us to get there is start big, and then shrink it. And uh, I know we're going to talk about this, but if you think about my books, my progression of my books, my first book, Active Value Investing, was 275 pages, I don't know, whatever, uh, 70,000 words, 75 charts and tables. And uh, my second book, which was really my, the little book of Sideways Markets, all it is, it's my first book compressed into the little book. <laughs> Okay, it's the napkin version of my first book, basically, right? But I tell you, like, from, you know, I, I could not write the little book without writing the big one, the first one. But at the same time, I'm so much more proud of my little book because, well, first of all, I was given a second chance to, as a, as a writer, to rewrite some things that I, you know, five years later or whatever, uh, three years later, yeah. Um, but also, uh, I was able to uh, figure, you know, throw out things that was not as important. So anyway, so the same thing when it comes to uh, building models, same thing. That's so funny. I did the same thing with mine. I wrote three quantitative value, <laughs> deep value, and then concentrated <laughs> investing. And I combined uh -huh. them all into one. And that, that third book is, is uh, much, much shorter, much, much easier to read, much, much cheaper. But it's probably, in my opinion, it's the better of the, it's the best of the lot. So let's, let's talk about active value investing. Sure. Uh, and the little book of sideways markets. So what's the thesis and uh, what are the implications for investors? Sure. So I got to give you the proper context. Uh, so I was so I started to write active value investing in 2005, and that book uh, was actually uh, the what the instigator for the book was the article I wrote for Financial Times maybe six months before that, where I basically made the case that the start, you know, the, if you look historically, if you look historically, every, um, okay, first of all, let's break up. Okay, so when you look at the stock market over the last 100 years or so, you've had a secular trends and you've had a cyclical trends. Secular are the markets that last for a long, long time, 10, 15, 20 years. And then you have a cyclical markets that kind of, it's kind of a volatility inside of those, inside, inside of those uh, markets. So, Every time we had a kind of loan bull market, you know, loan cycle bull market, the market that followed was not a bear market, but it was actually a sideways market. Because when we think about markets, we usually hear two terms, bull and bear. But in reality, when it comes to secular markets, we only had a one kind of a true bear market, which was 1929 market decline, I forget, 70%. But in reality, from like if you look from 1966 to 1982, the market fluctuated a lot you had a you know probably 30 you know 50 percent declines but it you know but it's just up up and down over you know 16 year period and it really has not gone anywhere so and then they usually the sideways markets are followed by bull markets and when then you have uh that last one was from 82 to 2000 and here is the uh so here's uh, here's the most important part <sighs> The sideways markets or bull markets are not caused by economy. The economic growth historically during sideways markets and bull markets was about the GDP grew about maybe you know three percent a year on a real basis. Um, 
Well, they're really caused by swings of price turnings, okay? And uh, in fact, I would argue this, if price turnings always stayed at 15 times earnings, if this became a law, 15 times earnings can go above, can be below, okay? Then we would we would basically not have uh, you know, kind of this markets. We would just basically have a very steady markets growing about 3% a year with GDP. Okay. In reality, you know, what happened was at the end of the sideways markets, PE was very, very low. And as the you know, as the economy continued to grow and PE started to expand, the growth, earnings growth was supersized by price to earnings expansion. So you had above average returns. And so the problem is the kind of uh, the price to earnings growth is that when it when you go above average, then you'll you know, and you when you're start supersizing this growth, at some point gets level so high you can't grow anymore. P gets too high. And then what happens, the pendulum starts swinging the other way. And this is why you have sideways markets again. So it's really all about these market cycles are really all about just human psychology, price turnings going from one extreme to another, and that's happening time after time after time. However, well, just, the- just before you go on, I, I, I love that idea and I have I went and tested that I went and looked at that independently, and so that the, the, what you what you what you say there are these very distinctive cycles, and basically you you use uh, Schiller PE or cyclically adjusted PE, and yeah. you can find these, and it's sort of sixty six to eighty two is a sideways market mm-hmm. because the uh, the PE compresses over the whole period until in eighty two the the PE is very low, and then mm-hmm. eighty two to two thousand is this massive bull market. And there's no real change in the underlying earnings. The earnings are growing at a pretty constant rate through the whole thing. It's 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 mostly PE expansion. And so then this is the thing that I think that most people will be surprised by. You come to 2000 and since 2000, and you say to date, that's been a sideways market where PE has been compressing. Or is that not the case that we bottom in 2009? Well, how do you, how do you how do you yeah. use this going forward? Yeah, so I just realized in to solve, you know, when I was writing the, you know, my first book, I was basically assuming we're going to have a semi-normal economy, okay? And uh and the economy, like if you look at GDP growth, it was semi-normal. One thing that I did not account for is that we're going to have interest rates going to almost zero or become negative in some part, you know, 17 trillion dollars of debt today actually has a negative yields. If you try to explain to your spouse what negative interest rates mean, good luck, because I can't. <laughs> because I would explain to my wife. So it basically means that I'm going to give you $100, you know, $100 and you're going to pay me back $90. And she still, my wife still doesn't understand this, which, which is logical. She doesn't. But anyway, it's in, in normal it's called default. When you pay less, it's usually default. But anyway, so I think what happened was if you if you had a semi-normal interest rates, the price to earnings go from above above average to average, through average, you know, stay below average, and then people say, I don't want to own stocks ever again, and this is where this is where basically uh, people give up on stocks, and this is when the next bull market starts. The problem is we never got to this capitulation stage, because the interest rates declined so much that they they just poured so much fuel, you know, they poured so much fuel on the on you know on, on the market that stock price went up. Stock price went up and never looked back. So, I would argue that my little book or my first my books are more relevant today 
than they were even when I wrote them because we are approaching valuations of you know of 1999 again. So uh, was I right in my thesis? I would argue that I was. But again, this is I'm describing a framework, right? And it's really uh, this was not a forecasting. You know, this is uh, in fact in my first book I had a chart and table and saying, okay, I have no idea what GDP growth is going to be. And I have no idea what the ending P is going to be. But if you want to forecast, here's a table. You know, put in your numbers and you can figure out how long this market would last. Um, but today we're at a very high level again. So it feels very 99-ish to me. So I think my books are as relevant today as they, you know, as they were when I wrote them. I agree. And I'm not disputing the fact that we're in a sideways market. I just think that we're at the top end of that sideways market. And if we see some of that PE compression, which we could easily see, uh, mm -hmm. at some stage in the not too distant future, then it looks a lot more like a, uh, a sideways market if we go down the other side again, because we won't have seen that advancement. Yes. Um, you're, you're working on a new book, The Intellectual Investor. Do you want to give us a little uh, taste of yeah. what that's going to be about? Yeah. So just realize, you know, when somebody writes a book, they go to promote it. Okay. So this is one of those books that may come out five years from now or 10 years from now. But because to me, it's really, well, the first book I really wrote it, uh, like I had a bucket list item. That's still probably the only item I had on my bucket list to write a book to make my father proud. Um, my second book was really just you know, John Wiley and Sons came back to me and said, well, you have the big book. How about, how about you write a little book? I'm like, great. Um, and, uh, but the, this book I'm really writing for me. And this is really a book for me before I can tell. So the, the name of the book is going to be The Intellectual Investor. Okay. And it's basically, it's a play on the intelligent investor. Okay. So what I'm trying to take the, it's kind of a, it's the next iteration of intelligent investing into intellectual investing. Or look at it as basically intelligent investing plus creativity, okay? And it's really, it's, this book is really for me trying to become a better investor. Because the good, good thing about investing, you can always get better. You can, you know, and if you don't, if you don't get better, then you actually get worse. So, and I, this book is for me to get better. So uh, there's a cute story that I, I, don't, I read it somewhere. I'm stealing it from somebody, but I don't know from whom. So the, this woman comes to Dalai Lama and she says, could you please talk to my son? He, you know, he eats too much sugar. The Lama said, sure, but can you come back in a month? The woman said, sure. So she comes back in a month with her son. The Lama looks at her son and says, uh, stop eating sugar. The son is, the woman is bewildered. She's like, I was here a month ago. You could have told me the same thing. He says, yes, but first I had to stop eating sugar myself. <laughs> so this, so before I can tell others how to become intellectual investors, I probably should turn myself into one. So this is why this book may take a long time for me to write it. So this is, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I, I, I like that answer. So the, it, I, I like the idea that it's uh, the intelligent investor plus creativity. What's the what's the creativity? So Ben Graham, when he you now when if you if you if you look at the intelligent investor, it had and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but there are two things you can get out of it: the recipe, which is buy stocks, buy cheap stocks, and this is what most people get out of intelligent investor. 
of the intelligent investor because it stares you in your face. You don't have to be very smart. 10 times earnings good, 15 times earnings bad, eight times earnings phenomenal. You know, that's, you know, that's the recipe. And, uh, but then there was the philosophy, right? Okay, so the, my point is this. So the, when Ben Graham was writing his recipe, he was not competing against computers. He was not competing, you know, he was basically, he lived in a different world. And if you look at Buffett's evolution, right, he started as a Ben Graham kind of cigar butt investor, and he evolved. And I would argue that you and I are still relatively young, and we have a long runway ahead of us, and we'll be competing more and more against smart investors, but more importantly against computers. If you are only applying quantitative principles, then you're, you are disadvantaged because, you know, if you're only left brain, okay, computers are left brain as well, right? Because it's an algorithm, right? So if you can put, you know, so therefore you're, you're coming to a fight with a knife and somebody has a gun. So my, my, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is figure out how can I compete in the world where I'm competing against computers, how can I outsmart them? And in my mind, creativity is part of that. And this is probably as far as I'm willing to go right now because I'm st- this is still work in progress for me. But this, but this is kind of this is the kind of the why I'm doing this book. So. so, can we talk a little bit about your investment process as it stands now? So, how do you sure. how do you hunt for uh, companies to invest in, and then how, what's the process after you find them? Sure. So if you think about our investment process, so the Russell, Russell Fuller, right? He talked about three sources of competitive advantage. You have an informational advantage, which if you have it today, most likely you're going to end up in jail 90% of the time. Uh, so you don't have that and we're not looking for that. Um, then you have really analytical advantage and behavioral advantage, behavioral advantage. Um, I am trying, it's kind of interesting, I think it's often difficult It's often difficult to say where analytical advantage starts or where it kind of evolves into behavioral advantage because I feel, I feel like they are tied together. So analytical advantage for us starts at first uh, from having a long-term time horizon. And I know this is, everybody says this, but for us it's really, in our, when we build financial models, we look, you know, we look four years out or longer, okay? So it's, a, it's deeply ingrained in our investment process. So, so for me, it's not just lip service, it's really in, in part in our analysis. And the reason you wanna do this is because you're competing, we're competing against the you know, institutional investors that have uh, external environment shrinks the time horizon, okay? So that's number one. But number two, uh, you can't really have a long-term time horizon if your clients don't have the time horizon. And so as a CEO of the firm, I have to make a decision that not every client is an appropriate client for us. Okay, so sometimes I have to say no to new clients, which is, guess what? It's not easy. You know, it's, it's not easy. Okay, and sometimes I have to let, let go clients who are not appropriate clients for us. Okay, and that's not enough. Then you have to educate your clients. There is a tremendous asymmetry of information between what I know about stocks and what my clients know about these companies. I buy a company, and for them, it's just a three or four-letter symbol. For me, we just spend 200 hours of doing research. So I write these 20-page letters to clients, you know, 
four times a year where I walk him through every decision we made in the portfolio and I say, if you bought a Twilio, here's why. And you have a five-page write-up kind of senior, kind of explaining the business the way we see it. Okay, and the reason it's important because at some point we'll be we'll be punched in the face. At some point, my client's portfolio will decline, and but my client's blood pressure, if they read my letters, will will not fluctuate much because they understand what we own and why we own it. So that's a long-term time horizon. Um, the uh, then uh, if, if you know if, if you look from behavioral perspective, we need to do we need to. Um, I have this, uh, I've written about this in the past, and I think it's a great framework. If you think about your total IQ, it's really, it's really a multiplication of your investment IQ and uh, it times your investment EQ, which is emotional quotient. It's your, so it's, you can say it's analytics, analytics times behavior, right? So the reason it's very important is this. I may understand the company very well. But if I'm not rational why I own the business, it doesn't matter how well I understand it. Okay, so let me give an example. So let's say uh, I have a friend who who said that he will never buy grocery stocks. And he never explained me why. But I, and I have a theory that maybe he, when he was eight years old, he was caught shoplifting <laughs> or something. I don't know. But, uh, but let's say you know, he understands grocery business very well. And his IQ is 150 when it comes to grocery businesses, but his EQ is 0.5, okay? So if you, it's a, remember EQ cannot be greater than one. So the most, his IQ, total IQ could be 150. But if EQ is uh, less than one, then suddenly it starts re reducing your total IQ, okay? So at some point you get punched in the face and you're gonna have to make a rational decision. And if you're an emotional wreck, that IQ is irrelevant, right. okay? So therefore, Warren Buffett talks about your so-called competence, and it's usually, it's usually, you usually think about it when it applies to analysis, but it also apply, uh, you know, to your understanding of the business, but it also should apply to your EQ. Okay, yes, I understand the business, but am I a rational investor when it comes to owning this business? So for me, I find that I'm not very rational when it comes to owning low-quality companies, when I, you know, owning uh, or, or when I own companies that are uh, whose uh, business is linked very tightly to commodities, so therefore we don't have them in our portfolios, okay? Because I know my limitations, okay? So that's where your behavioral edge comes. Also, it's kind of interesting. So when you play chess and you go to the tournament, you really don't have a you don't have a choice in choosing your opponent, right? So you come to the tournament. And you, you know you have to play this the geekiest guy who only thinks about chess, right? In investing, I can come to the tournament and I say, you know what, I want to I want to play against this guy who works out six hours a day and he's here just because he lost the bet. Okay, that's what investing is. I don't have to. I can choose my opponent. I can choose stocks I invest in, right? So if if there's an area where which I don't understand well, I don't have to invest there. So anyway, so the outcome. So part of our advantage. So when I was thinking about competitive advantage. It's it's not just one thing. It's long-term time horizon. It's being more rational than others. It's a it's doing very deep research, and when we get punched in the face, is actually be able to stay rational. Um, also, I uh, you know I run a relatively small firm and I com and I, and I compete against giants, right? And I look at it as an advantage. 
because we don't have an institutional imperative of creating a portfolio that looks like a kind of Noah's Ark. Warren Buffett calls it Noah's Ark, where you own two of everything. Right. Okay. Okay. So we are like most institutional investors today are forced to they look and you know the um, consultants look at their portfolio and compare them to the S&P 500 or whatever the index compared to. And say and so uh, so what happens? Institutional investors have to underweight or overweight certain industries, etc. We don't do any of this stuff. We just basically buy high-quality companies and we buy them cheap. So I don't have that. You know, uh, we don't market to institutional clients and we don't want them to be as clients. So we don't have nothing that's you know we don't have that handicap in us. Um, also, we have a. You know, research. I have a huge research a research network. We have a conference every year, Value XVL, and we limit it to 40 people. It's a non-for-profit conference where you have other investors, diehard investors, come and share ideas. And I, over the years, I was able to build a huge network of people I talk to on a consistent basis. So I have a flows of ideas coming not just from me doing screen or reading Value Investor Club or uh, doing other things. I also get a you know. Uh, have exposure to a lot of ideas coming from a lot of from my research network so uh that describes part of our process i guess but i'm not sure which you know no, that's uh, good I, I always anybody who mentions chess i always ask what their favorite opening is oh my god i you know what i <laughs> i probably i go back and forth but i probably just go to e2 e4 you know, so that's at yeah, the end. But uh, yeah, I like that. My, I, I like to play the English. We had just had Connor Haley on, and he he likes the the bird just because it's a very weird opening. But sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so um, but at the end of the day, you want to have a research process which allows you to be as rational as possible. Okay, and that's and that's you know that's my goal. I want to be as rational as possible with my portfolio. And because you get punched in the face, that's just, and then what you do after that, that's really going to determine your returns in the long run. I want to talk about rationality and irrationality, uh, irrationality in relation to a particular stock in one moment. But just before I do, just talk to me a little bit about the portfolio. How, how do you think about sizing positions? Do you trim? How many positions do you hold? What does the portfolio look like? Yeah. So... For me to talk about this, I have to understand what, who my clients are. I really have two type of clients. People come to me and say, Vitaly, here's my life savings. Don't screw it up. And so in this case, we would have what I would call a kind of diversified portfolio where position sizes will go from 3 to 7%. And you're probably going to have 25 positions. Okay, And um, position sizing, and it's going to be the case in both portfolios, the second portfolio I'll discuss as well. But it's basically the higher the quality of the company, and the cheaper it is, the larger the largest the position is. Okay, and the lower the quality, and the less you know the more expensive it is, the lower position size. It's all relative. So we would have seven percent seven percent positions if it's an incredibly high quality company, and it's a incredibly insanely cheap. Okay, so and so that's the kind of diversified portfolio. And then I have clients who say Vitaly. Here is 10 or 20% of my life savings. Please invest it for me. So in this case, I could be 
more aggressive and uh, build position sizes would go from seven to 15%. Right. So it's a more, it's a much more focused portfolio. It's not appropriate for a client for whom I manage all their life savings, but it's appropriate, it's appropriate for a client for whom I have maybe 10, 15 or 20% of their total portfolio. So that's how we posi uh, position size. And one thing that's very important is that we are very formulaic when it comes to position sizes because we want uh, to control our emotions. It's really, when we analyze a company, we actually, you're gonna like this, we have a quantitative process where we figure out, the, you know, we, every company, you know, we rate A, B, C, and D on quality. And if it's an A company, that it, at some point it could be 7% position. If it's a B company, it will never be more than 5% position. And uh, so we are, Un, doing company analysis and figure out what what quality what quality it is, and uh, what discount to the fair value is, and that basically on a formulaic basis leads us to position sizing. We try to keep you know kind of because you know how it is. You fall in love. You're like, oh my yeah. god, this is the best company ever, and I love it to death. And let's put twenty percent of the portfolio in it. Well, <laughs> we don't do that. So we you know we um, you know when you manage, and this is a serious point. When you manage somebody's uh, life savings, it's an incredible, incredible responsibility. And um, therefore, we take it in, in, incredibly seriously because, you know, yes, I'm not taking people out of burnt, you know, burnt houses. You know, what we do is not, I'm not doing, let me put this, I'm not doing God's work. Okay, I, I get that. But, but at the same time, when you have somebody's life savings, that's the only, that's, you're not going to have any more money. There's people, that's all money they, they're ever going to have you really don't want to screw it up. So this is why we are so thorough with our process. This is why we try to so hard to be rational. Anyway. That's a great answer. So let me, let me segue away from that and let's talk irrationality and rationality when it comes to Tesla. Oh my God. Okay. So, uh, so I, Toby, I wrote the 30, so I'll start, I'll start from, from afar. I bought model three. Okay. <laughs> okay. And a normal person would just enjoy driving it. And I did enjoy driving it, but then I ended up writing a 37-page article, 11-part article, which people can find on my website. It's a, everything. <laughs> so to me, it was interesting because I was blown away how great the car is. I, and I realized, I'm not sure if it's, you know, I, I realized that electric car is the car of the future. I'm not saying Tesla is the company of the future. I'm just saying I can see how, like internal combustion engine cars, what called ICE cars, are basically the horses, and the EV cars and the electric cars are the are the cars of the future, basically. So, and as an investor, there's a, uh, there's so many implications there. Um, so one thing I realized, as an example, that it's a today it's a for you know people think about uh, General Motors etc. and Ford. And for them, it's a foregone conclusion that General Motors will be able to make great electric cars, and that they will be their market share will be the same in electric cars as as, as it was in the internal combustion engine cars. And um, I would argue that may or may not be the case. Um, let me give you this analogy: When uh, in 2007, iPhone came out, Nokia, Motorola were the biggest cell phone makers in the world. Okay. And you would think that five years out or ten years out, the uh, 
you know, iPhone is going to have a small market, you know, Apple is going to have a small market share and, uh, and uh, Motorola and Nokia will dominate it. Well, that's not what happened, right? And the reason for that, because even though iPhone was called a kind of, I had a phone in its name, it was really a smartphone, which is really a computer. So when you, so when, when you went from dumb phone to smartphones, you really went from one domain where the hardware was the most important part into another domain where making phone calls actually was the least important part, right? right. It's not, okay. So, and therefore it requires a different, very different skill set. So uh, when you made uh, dumb phones, interface was not as important. The, you know, software was not as important. A lot of, other, you know, you know these, a lot of factors were not, you know, the, the factors that mattered in the dumb phones did not matter as much. What also happens when you go from one domain to another, your assets become your liabilities. And this is an incredibly important point to understand. If you had a 5,000 engineers that focused on, I don't know, I'm just making this up, on plastic, uh, whatever that is, on a, whatever the dumb phone's expertise was, those engineers become liability because their knowledge actually weighs you down. So when an iPhone came out, Nokia should have looked at Apple and said, Apple, thank you so much because now we know what the future product is going to be like. Okay, and, and uh, so and what Nokia did actually, they took their, you know, they took their uh, Symbian, which was a software for that dumb phone, and tried to convert it into a smartphone software. Well, that failed miserably. So uh, it's kind of like General Motors are trying to take their internal combustion engine car and kind of turn it into a hybrid and you have a Volt and Bolt, and, which is none of them more good cars. Um, so my point is this. It's not a, for today, Tesla is the largest electric car maker in the world, okay? And, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, 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 another point is very important to understand. The reason Tesla is losing money, not because it's a, uh, not a good, comp good company, it's just because it's very, you know, you need to get to scale. And even at half a million cars a year that Tesla producing today, more or less, it's still subscale. Okay, so for General Motors to transition to electric cars, it's going to have to lose a lot of money too. Okay, I think over the last 10 years, Tesla community lost 25, 30 billion dollars. Guess what? That's, you know, the General Motors of the world, and I'm not just speaking on General Motors, just it comes, you know, every car company you can think of, they're going to have to uh, lose a lot of money. And that is a lot more difficult than you would think, right? Uh, there was a great article about Walmart on Recode. And uh, talking about Walmart's pains of you know competing with Amazon, uh, the the uh, Walmart five years ago I think bought Jet uh, Jet.com, and the guy who was running Jet.com is running Walmart.com today. So uh, <laughs> uh, Amazon carries uh, 12 million to 300 million SKUs. Walmart store has about 150,000 SKUs, you know, items basically. Okay, so Amazon has 110 distribution centers in the United States. Walmart has, I think, 10 or 12. So for Walmart to be able to compete with Amazon, they need to expand their, you know, uh, distribution network, and they have to, you know, and have to start carrying a lot more items. Well, Walmart.com is losing a billion dollars a year, and the board absolutely hates it because it's not in Walmart's culture to lose money. Right. And uh, and uh, and and so the there was a the article described the kind of the tension between Walmart.com CEO and the board, and uh, they in fact they're pushing the the Walmart.com CEO to lose less money. Well, the losses come because they're subscale, 
Okay, and so to so long story short, if if you look at the uh, uh, traditional car makers, it's the transition to electric cars will be very painful, and it doesn't mean that I'm not saying that they won't be able to transition. All I'm saying is it's not a it's not a given that they will all transition well, and if you think about it, you know. Yes, you know, Nokia kind of became irrelevant. Motorola became irrelevant. But Samsung today is the one of the largest maker of cell phones still, you know, smartphones, even though – so it was able to transition. So some companies will do a better job than others. But to me today as an investor, I look at its, you know, the uh, General Motors and Fords, and they are to me uninvestable. At some point that may change, you know, but to, to, you know, that was one, another conclusion of the article. Does that make you a Tesla bull? Does that make you a Tesla long? Uh, that's a good point. So I, so normal person when he writes a thirty-seven page article, <laughs> he stops. Not me. I wrote another two-page, you know, two-part article about this. And basically, this is where it gets interesting. I can see how Tesla could go to, you know, could basically decline seventy-five percent. And it's very simple. This is a company uh, that's losing a lot of money. And at some point, some point it may have a kind of a rework moment where the markets will stop financing its losses. Right. And then, you know, the stock price would decline. They would have to issue a lot of equity. And if you're equity shareholder, you get diluted. Okay. So, I, oh, and, and maybe at some point we get bought out at $10 billion valuation, which would be 75% decline. So I can see that. I can also see how if, uh, they're right, right now they have a run rate about half a million cars a year, roughly. Um, I at some point I can see how they could be producing one or two million cars a year, and if they do this, they would have you know much much higher earnings, and then you can see the stock price going up three, four, five fold. Okay, so I can see both sides. Here's where I struggle. I have no idea what probability to put on each one. So I'm neither bull neither bull nor bear. But there was a it's kind of it's kind of funny the very last part about uh, in my Tesla series, I wrote about tribalism. And this is probably the most favorite 800 words out of 16,000. Yeah, it's almost like a little book, right? And that was actually my favorite part by far. Because when you, if you go on Twitter, and you type TSLA, which is Tesla, you'll see a lot of people who are raving how much they love the car like I am and how much you know, and how Elon Musk is great, etc. And then if you if you add a Q at the end, TSLA Q, you have Tesla Qs. And you know, basically the Q comes from this. When a company goes bankrupt, you add Q to the symbol. So when GM went bankrupt, I think they added the Q. So this is you know kind of Tesla bears, right? And um and so you have this tribalism, you know, you have Teslas versus Tesla Q, you have bull versus bears. And um and I was thinking about it, like when uh, some tribalism is actually good, right? Like I'm very tribal when it comes to my family. My kids know that no matter what, I'll be on their side. And this is came like when we were cavemen and we were in one cave and there were tigers outside. We were a tribe, right? It was us versus them. It's us versus a tiger, right? It's, you know, so that's where tribalism came. And tribalism is probably good in sports, right? My uh, partner, Mike, went to CU Boulder and uh, see Boulder and Nebraska don't like each other, you know. And uh, so uh, he had a sticker on his desk a few months ago in, in August. Uh, it said, "Start, uh, don't wait till, till, till September. Start hating Nebraska now." <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is a true, you know, kind of, you know, see Boulder fan. Okay, and so that kind of harmless, you know, it's a, it's very harm, harmless tribalism, I guess, unless you are 
kind of a soccer fan in Brazil, then it gets it, right. uh, it becomes a very different story. Um, and you have tr uh, tribalism in politics. I'm not going to go there. But when it comes to uh, investing, tri uh, tribalism is very dangerous because it's really there is you know it's there is no them. If I'm a bull, if I think if I'm positive on Tesla or on any stock, and somebody has a different opinion. It's not them. I should look at them as my friends because what I should be trying to do is figure out where could I be wrong. There was this great saying by Seneca, time will discover the truth. And so the truth in this case is really fundamentals, right? Will this, what will this company's earnings going to be five years from now, three years from now? What the price earnings is going to be and uh, how this business will look like. If somebody has a different opinion from me, and that opinion is derived from doing research, I should embrace it. I should actually try to go out of my way to figure out what they're thinking. So, it's not, there, is, so there is no them in investing. So it's not us versus them. And um, I, uh, there, I learned that in, uh, invest, in, um, in, Jewish, in the Jewish law, which is kind of interesting, in, uh, when you have a capital punishment case, if a jury comes with unanimous guilty decision, then the person is let go, goes free. Again, I'm going to repeat again. If the guilty decision is unanimous, let the person go, which is kind of counterintuitive, it right? Is. Kind of, yes. But their thinking is this. If there was not a single person who disagreed, right. most likely the decision was not well thought out. Okay? Right. That's great. So, so, okay, so in at, at IMA, we, you know, we kind of encourage this, you know, it's healthy debate because, again, we're just looking for the truth. And that's what investing is about, really search for the truth to some degree. Because, again, time will discover it at some point anyway. So we just want to find it before, the before time does. Um, so anyway, so the, uh, there, is a, uh, there was this comedian, uh, Milton, Barrow, uh, Milton Barrow, who said, I used to be bullish, then I was bearish. And now I'm brokeish, okay. So my point is just don't be tribalish, you know. <laughs> right. Then you won't be. Then you won't be brokeish. Um, anyway, so that's my kind of Tesla arc. Uh, I, I like that. I think that's that's great analysis. That's that, uh, that's uh, you make a very compelling argument. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the SoftBank uh, WeWork fiasco that's going on right now, and. and is there a VC bubble? What, what, what does the, what's the impact of SoftBank on the market? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually ended up being my, one of my most controversial investments, which is so we bought SoftBank in uh, 2015. At the time, nobody knew what SoftBank was. I think when we bought it, my client said, why, did you, why are you buying this Japanese bank? I mean, really. It's just I don't remember Masasun from, from the, the, the dot com, the first dot com boom. That's right. No, that's right. Uh, well, I guess they didn't. But uh, so yes. So when you're buying SoftBank at the time, and this is very important to understand why we bought it. Um, at the time, we were, if you look at the so SoftBank owns some assets. It's owned uh, at the time. It still does Japanese Telecom, which is the third largest telecom in Japan. And when I say third, it's say like the market share is maybe a few percentage points behind like number one, number two. So it's still very large at scale, you know, telecom. It owns uh, almost half of uh, Yahoo Japan. And it owns, at the time, 30% 30, 30 of Alibaba. Now it's 25%. And 
And uh, so if you if you just literally took the sum of all these three companies and uh, took out debt, you would realize that if you were buying SoftBank at the time, uh, 50 cents on a dollar. Okay, so why, it's why just, the discount? I, I, well, here's the discount. So the reason the discount happened was because SoftBank also bought Sprint. They bought 80% of Sprint, and so the Sprint was too public equity. You know, you know it was public uh, entity. And uh, Sprint, uh, when SoftBank bought it, they thought they would be able to merge it with T-Mobile. That did not happen, and Sprint was bleeding money, had a 30-plus billion dollars of debt. So two things happened. First of all, investors, what they did, they took Sprint's debt and consolidated to, you know, and well, accounting rules say if you own majority position of something, you have to consolidate that, okay? And that's, and I see the logic behind it, except Sprint was a separate legal entity. If Sprint went bankrupt, Sobank would not be responsible for that debt. That's right. point number so one. So for accounting purposes, it was consolidated, but it was non-recourse to SoftBank. So it was would have been bad if they'd lost it, but it wasn't necessarily going to be fatal to the mothership. That's that. That's point exactly. There was another point. If you do the math, if Sprint would go bankrupt, then the value of SoftBank would decline, but it was still significant margin of safety. In other words, even the sum of all the assets I mentioned still was worth more even if Sprint went to zero. So that was another one. So this was our contrarian view. And we looked at the, uh, we looked at SoBank and we, we, we thought it's run by phenomenal CEO. Okay, just, I gotta explain that. Everybody thinks Masayoshi San today is uh, not a genius. I'm gonna be kind of, you know, but, but let's, let me just give you a, let me just give you a, a perspective on him. So, um, in uh, when he's uh, 18 years old, he comes to the United States. He graduates from high school in uh, Stanford, I think. I forget one of the colleges in California. Like in l half the time, okay. He uh, when he think he's 19, he invents a translation computer uh, that translates from Japanese to English, or vice versa. Sells it to Sharp for a million dollars. Remember, this is 1970s, where a million dollars was really a lot of money. Okay, so and he's not even 20 years old yet. Then he goes to Japan and he tries to figure out what he's gonna he's gonna do for the rest of his life. Then he realizes that computers are the future. He starts SoftBank, which was a software distribution company. So then he sees the internet is the future, and he starts investing investing in the dot com stocks before like before even dot com is on anybody's radar, and he makes a lot of money. Then in uh. Then he does lose his short, you know, then at some point, in all fairness, stock, he was not responsible for the SoBank stock being so, you know, I forget where the price was at the time, but it was insane. It was off and 99%, it, right, from, to oh, sorry, but you haven't, you haven't. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, this, I think This right. is where it, it got to at the peak. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I, I maybe, I don't know, maybe it got to some kind of insane valuation and then declined 99%. Right. So. The original valuation was too high, probably decline was, you know, probably too much as well. But anyways, you know, he invests in, a, then he invests in, a, he survives the bubble, you know, even though it did decline at, if you look at the extremes, it did decline 99%. Then he invests, then he sees that uh, China is going to, you know, the internet is coming to China and the commerce is coming to China. He invests in Alibaba which is probably the best investment ever made. He $100 million is worth 
over hundred billion dollars today, probably more than that. Um, and then he also, and this is where it gets interesting. He, uh, you know, he sees that uh, if you're going to have a smartphone, you know, the future is in smartphones. In 2005 or 2006, before iPhone was introduced, before anybody had an inkling about iPhone, he came to Steve Jobs with a drawing, which looked kind of like an iPod with some digits on it. Honest to God, and he was, you know, I, and uh, and then he says, uh, Steve, you should make this phone, and Steve Jobs says, Masa, you do your thing, we make phones. But what he did, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, he got a pro, he. He got a uh, Steve Jobs promised him if they make a phone, Masayoshi San will get exclusivity on this phone uh, in Japan. Well, the only problem is at the time he did not even own a telecom in Japan, so he goes out and buys Vodafone KK, and he buys it at the time it's the worst-run telecom in Japan. He, for two years, he works incredibly hard and he turns it around. Again, today it's one of the best telecoms in Japan. And then he gets, you know, iPhone comes out, they get exclusivity for iPhone, that propels uh, what if, you know, they, that, that telecom into, you know, into where it is today. Um, and and so, so this is the person, and there was, uh, so this is the person who created SoftBank. And just realize this, you know, this is, you know, he does not have a flawless track record. He did make mistakes, but he did build a company. He's the second richest person in Japan. Just completely, on, you know, he created that. He built a, you know, he built a company that's worth $100 billion on his own. Okay, so, and if you look at his investment track record, even if you take out the Alibaba, it's still incredible. It's like 30 plus percent a year over a long period of time. So it's still a very impressive track record. Um, so that's what Masayoshi San is. So if you look at this, we are buying basically a dollar 50 cents and we have Masayoshi San run it, okay? Right. So far, so good, so far, so good. And so throughout ownership, the discounts stayed the same, but the value has gone up. So the dollar became $2 basically because because the Alibaba, uh, you know, Alibaba you know, went up in price and also, in our analysis at the time, Telecom Japan was not a public company, it was still private. So our assumptions on valuation was more conservative uh, than where it's trading today because about six months ago they took it public and they took it public at much higher, at higher multiple than we were you know, valuing it on our conservative assumptions. Okay, so anyway, so that's so far so good. Then SoBank comes out with Vision Fund 1. Okay, and this is where the bubble, you know, so they, and uh, they were going to commit $25 billion of their own money. And then uh, you're going to have, a, you know, $75 billion will come from other investors. And so I'll be honest, I was never a big fan of this because just it's just so much money. So they, they were basically, so the, okay, so the rationale behind this, this fund is this. Masayoshi san thinks that we're going to have a singularity. Singularity is basically where computers become smarter than humans, which I think is going to happen at some point. I just have no idea when. Um, and he wanted to invest in the companies in the early stages that would benefit from this. Um, so the problem is that is that the private markets are, it's relatively small markets. So when you have $100 billion kind of infused into these markets, it. it distorts it. Yes, exactly. And so we were worried about this. But here's the 
we went back to our models and we said, all right, so how what is SoBank worth if that $25 billion they put in is worth zero? Okay, and it was still, the margin of safety was still very, very high. It was still, maybe it, maybe it would not be 50 cent dollar, maybe it becomes 60 cent dollar. I forget the numbers now, but it was still significantly undervalued. Again, I don't have to, I'm not, I'm not buying into the bubble. I'm not buying into, I've been very conservative in assuming that that uh, Vision Fund 1 is worthless, okay? Even though at the time he had a very good return. And then he buys into WeWork. And we look at WeWork and we are stunned because uh, three years ago we analyzed a company called, at the time it was called Regus, now it's called IWG, which is basically, you know, they were WeWork before WeWork was WeWork. .com 1.0 okay. though at WeWork. Yeah, yeah, yes. And uh, all you do, you basically uh, rent out, you know, you list space for, you know, you enter into long-term leases and then you enter into short-term leases. That's, you know, it's a, you borrow long-term, you land short-term. That's that's how it is. We work had that business plus they also had beer fountains and ping pong tables and they were losing money. So, but that, that was basically it. And so I was very skeptical of that. But again, in our, you know, in our analysis, we assumed that Vision Fund, you know, Vision Fund One is is worthless. So, if things blow up there, yes, the stock price, you know, will get impacted in the short run, but the permanent loss of capital would not be there. Okay. Then, uh, Masayoshi San announces Vision Fund Two, and um, if you look at my my last article I wrote about this, and if you read between the lines, I was worried because at this point, they were going to put in. $40 billion into a $100 billion fund. And that's that money would come from SoftBank. So now I'm worried because now you you add significant leverage to the company. Um, and um, and also, so that's that was my worry number one. And uh, and then I so so I kind of I already so I already had some trepidations uh, about uh, SoftBank. And then when we were we work blew up. And they, there was an inkling that uh, they're going to put in their own money, the money, they, they're going to try to bail it out. We sold the stock. Okay, and let me tell you why. So the number one, so remember when we bought SoftBank, our thinking was that the discount at some point will go away. So it's just, you know, so it's at some point it's going to start trading maybe 80 cents on a dollar or 90 cents on a dollar. Okay, here I see that if they start bailing out, you know, we work. The bailout is not going to come from Vision Fund. It's going to come from SoftBank. So it's suddenly, SoftBank debt balance sheet will balloon. That's number one. Number two, the if you know the Sprint, as you know, when Sprint and T-Mobile merge, the the debt will migrate from SoftBank's balance sheet to T-Mobile's balance sheet. And I, my thinking was that at some point it was also Sprint, and they're going to have a very good balance sheet. Now I start seeing that well, this may never happen because if they are, if the WeWork is going to become a sinkhole for, you know, for the capital, that, you know, that that will continue to stay high, and and now I realized also that well, if they put money, so the so the another risk is that Vision Fund One may never happen in the way they envisioned it originally, and the so bank is going to have to put in more money of their own money. So I realized that this company will never kind of have a clean balance sheet and that discount may you know, remain remain permanent. This is when I realized, okay, well, we're going to sell the stock and then we'll watch from the sidelines. If Masayoshi-san is a very smart guy, if he 
reshuffle things, changes his strategy, etc. We might come back and buy it later. But today's, you know, today, I can see how, yes, discount is there today. And but the you know the risk is that the value will decline in the future because debt will go up, and then discount actually will never narrow. So that's why we sold the stock. And so so the so here's the interesting part there about VC bubble. So just think about this for a second. I'm the person who, and I wrote a article and this article about VC bubble because you do have a dot com point two bubble is happening in private equities today, because um, if you are a startup and you have a venture capitalist giving you $10 million, let's say, I don't know, let's say give you a million dollars at $10 million valuation, they give you this million dollars and say, grow. So you take half a million dollars, you hire engineers, you take another half a million dollars, give it to Facebook and Google and start advertising. At this point, you're not really focused on profitability. All you want is growth. Six months later, you have a round B, you know, now you have larger revenues, you're still losing money, and you've been valued at $100 billion, and the venture capitalist gives you another $10 million. So you spend some of that money on hiring more people and creating a product, and a lot of that money goes to Facebook and Amazons and and Googles, etc. So what happens is this, that the you have a bubble develop because you've been valued on revenues, and profitability is not really important, right? The only problem is you're gonna have this WeWork moment happening where markets, so because you're losing money, you always rely on the kindness of strangers and you always rely that they're gonna be a greater fool gonna give you more money in the future. At some point, you're gonna run out of greater fools and then you're gonna have a bubble burst. So imagine I have this mentality and then SoBank is one of the propagator, <laughs> the instigators of the biggest bubble. You know, of, you know, SoBank is actually blowing up this bubble, and so you do have this conflicting thoughts, right? And you know, and I, and the only solace we had is that the, I can I can ring fence Vision Fund One. I can say, okay, well, okay, this thing is zero. There is still the rest is still worth a lot more than the someone you know than. You know, uh, you know, then where the stock is trading today, but anyway, so that's you know, kind of uh, I I feel like also I'm maybe partially responsible for WeWork bubble uh, because I wrote so many positive articles about <laughs> Master Shasan, and maybe he read them, and maybe she just you know, <laughs> maybe it went to his head, and he's like, well, I, you know, I walk on water, so I, anyway, so I really am a genius. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I think you know, I think this is kind of uh, this is very important lesson not just for Masayoshi San, but for everybody. The market is such a great humbling machine. You know, it's a, if, you, if you feel you're great, just wait, you know, six months. And, you know, the market's going to tell you, you know, it's, it's going to you know, bring the, you know, <laughs> your self-esteem down a little bit. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. Could, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Vitaly, uh, I'm sad to say that we're coming up on time. I've, it's absolutely flown by chatting to you. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Um, yes, yeah, so they, they can read my articles on contrarianedge.com, contrarianedge.com. We'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes as well. And, and we have a podcast, which is not as great as yours. And, <laughs> and it's actually, it's not even a podcast. It's really kind of articles on tape. It's just, when I write articles, you can listen to them read to you by a professional narrator. So you won't have to listen to my voice. That sounds great. You know, and it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I should get and that for my podcast too. Yeah. Yeah, and just go to investor.fm, 
investor.fm, like FM radio. Yeah, you know, so and you can listen to them there. Got it. Vitaly Katzenelson, thank you so much. Toby, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's it. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com.